Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. We're pleased to be joined today by the authors of Winning Objections, a mock trial guidebook. Authors are Brian Pilchik, Amanda Mundell, and Emily Miller. Winning Objections is a book that was recently released that I think uh, the title kind of explains exactly what it's about. It's about digging into uh, objections. The, The tagline that I'm looking on the cover here is objecting is about to get a whole lot easier. We're thrilled to be able to talk to the authors about the background of the book and why you should be interested in buying the book. So Brian, Emily, and Amanda, thank you guys so much for taking some time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us on. We're thrilled to be here. Thanks, guys. So one of the things that I want to do before we get into the book is is a thing that we do on basically every episode. We've obviously not talked to any of you on the podcast before. And I know Drew and I are interested in, you know, telling our audience about your background in mock trial and sort of what led you to this point. So, Brian, let's start with you. Uh, What's your origin story in mock trial, you know, sort of from beginning to where you are now? Sure. Um, So I started in high school. I competed in Pennsylvania for four years. Um, And then when I got to Tufts University for college, I wasn't necessarily planning on doing more mock trial. I remember one day I was at my dorm and someone had stuck a poster on it and it was just the Harvard logo in black and white. And underneath it said, we beat Harvard, Tufts mock trial. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I was like, cool, I'll try out for that. Um, And it it definitely became my life in college. I mean, I'm sure that's the case for for most amped up mockers. That's probably what was more important to me than academics for those four years. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so I was on uh, TMT for four years. I had the the real privilege of being able to go to nationals for all four of those years. Um, my freshman year, I actually first, I don't think I, I can say I met Amanda, but I, I would have seen Amanda. Uh, we were in Des Moines for nationals and she was competing in the fifth round championship. And I, I don't know if you know this, Amanda, I was way in the back uh, watching. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> um, after, after Tufts, I went uh, right to law school. So uh, all three of us went to Harvard for law school. And so I went straight through. And when I got there, I went to the student activities fair, obviously, to see about joining the mock trial team and was dismayed to discover that at least at that time, Harvard didn't have one. So I joined a moot court team. Uh, I'm sorry to report that it's not nearly as fun. So if (laughs) if anyone's going on to law school. Yeah, um, can confirm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but by my 2L year, I wanted to get back into AMTA stuff. So I grabbed Nick Teleki, a former classmate of mine. We had both been co-presidents at Tufts at the same time. And he had just graduated. And so we went down the street to MIT, which I knew did not have a program at the time. And we told them we were starting one and that we would coach it. Um, and I've been doing that. This is my fifth year now coaching at MIT. It's been a blast. Um, I've gotten to work with... Other coaches that we've brought in who were former mockers at William and Mary, uh, Georgia Tech, um, Cornell, Tufts, uh, Florida, which has been really, really cool to learn from all of their different styles. UT Austin. Sorry, Sandy. Almost forgot you. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I've been, I've been coaching now. Um, I'm a lawyer now. I'm a, a public defender here in Massachusetts. So I do trial level work with people accused of crimes. And I think that's, I think that's it. Well, I think that's an interesting sort of way of coming through all of this. Uh, So Amanda, we heard a a brief reference to you in in Brian's, but let's go to you next. Give us your origin story and sort of history in mock trial. Sure. Um, I think my origin story is best summed up by uh, the sentence, mom is always right, which is a sentence I try not to use too often. Um, But when I was in junior high, I was just such a shy public speaker and absolutely terrified to give any kind of speech in class or in front of a group. Um, And so I took a speech class over summer to get my speech credits out of the way because there was no way I was joining mock trial or uh, speech or debate or anything like that. And really had um, the privilege of working with a wonderful teacher and then the speech coach at our school um, who, who pushed me to try to work through some of that anxiety and fear. And, and my mom had been in the background constantly saying, you know, I really think you should try mock trial. I think mock trial would be really fun. It'd be really great. And eventually I just said, fine, mom, I'll try out for the team. Um, so I tried out for my high school team and made it as a witness 
and and really, really enjoyed it. Um, I looked up to a lot of the girls who I went to an all-girls school called Lorena High School in California, and I looked up to a lot of the girls who were attorneys on the team um, and stuck with it for four years. We actually ended up going to nationals for the first time in the history of our school and our county, uh, which was exciting, senior year. Um, and by that point, I think it's safe to say that I was hooked. So uh, when I went to UCLA for undergrad, that was the first thing I sought out uh, when I started. I tried out for the team and was fortunate enough to make it um, and was on a team with some of the great legends of mock trial, Miles Prince, uh, for instance, Stephen Mayer, um, all those wonderful folks, and and spent five years at UCLA competing. Um, my third year, we went to national. We went to nationals um, a few times, but my third year was the year that that Brian mentioned. Um, we actually made it to the fifth round and had a really hard fought round against NYU and won, uh, which was pretty exciting. And then after I graduated, I took about a year and a half off and worked for a bit. Applied to law school, went to law school, and thought you know, I really just don't think that mock trial is over for me. Uh, and fortunately, Joe Resnick, who also went to Harvard Law School with us, had the same idea and reached out to me and said, you know, I hear that there's a law school mock trial competition. I really think we should do it. So Joe and I became trial partners and competed our first year um, at the uh, the um, national uh, trial competition in TC and went to nationals, crashed and burned. We were absolutely terrible and, and went back the second year uh, and actually won the competition um, and decided from then on, uh, maybe it would be better to grow this program at HLS so that they could have a mock trial program for years to come. So fortunately, Brian, who actually competed uh, for, I guess, our second year, right, Brian? Um, yeah. For the team, helped really ground the program at HLS. And we ran tryouts and Emily uh, tried out for the team and made it and and competed on a team for the regional level of the national trial competition and was excellent. Um, and that's kind of how that got started at HLS. But that's sort of my competition story. I've also coached uh, at various levels. I used to run an elementary mock trial workshop for elementary schools um, over the summer. I coached middle school mock trial the year after I graduated law school in Iowa when I was clerking. I've coached at the high school level back at my high school and I've assisted in college. And then most recently, I've had the privilege of working with UCLA Law School and Justin Bernstein with their program. Well, I think if there's one thing to take from that, from two people who host a mock trial podcast and three people who, mo- who wrote a mock trial book, is that mock trial is definitely never over for uh, <laughs> any of us. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's great. And, and obviously, you know, we've heard Justin is decent at this activity. So uh, I think that's that's a really cool experience to have. Um, so, Emily, let's let's go to you next. We've we've heard you mentioned in, in uh, Amanda's story as well. But what's your origin story? How did mock trial start and how has it gone for you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like Brian and Amanda, I competed in high school. Um, I honestly tried out for mock trial because I had tried basically every sport in the universe and I was just garbage at all of them. Um, So I thought maybe this, you know, kind of nerdy club is probably better suited for me. Um, And it it just kind of took hold from there. It was so important, like a lot of people, I think, experience in this community um, to my social life. It was so important uh, to building public speaking skills. So when I got to college, I went to to Cornell. Um, It it just felt like a natural fit. I, I had to keep going. Um, and then once I graduated college, like Brian, I went straight through to HLS. Um, and by that point I really thought I was done. Um, you know, I, I had kind of prioritized mock trial over school for a long time. And I was like, no, this is law school. This is serious. I gotta, I gotta start really hitting the books. Um, and fortunately Brian was very, uh, insistent that I not give up on mock trial. Uh, and he, he persuaded me to just you know, join the HLS team, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I got involved with coaching uh, at MIT with Brian, which was just an absolute blast. And it was, you know, taught me a lot about mock trial uh, that I, I don't think I knew before. Um, so, so I did that through law school. And now I'm working uh, in New York City. I'm an employment lawyer. So I do uh, represent plaintiffs uh, in, you know, various employment cases, sexual harassment, discrimination. And I also do some some criminal defense. So uh, about to get some of my first trial experience, which is really exciting. But 
you know, mock trial has always been a, a big part of this and definitely led me to where I am now. Nice. Well, thank you guys so much for being on here and sharing your stories with us. I think that it's it's really nice and wholesome, at least for me to hear as someone that's recently removed from the college mock trial circuit, that the friends that you make, the people you meet can stick with you and you know maybe you can do something crazy like write a book together. So here we are. The three of you have written this wonderful book. Uh, let's just let's get started with you know where that book all started. So how did the initial idea uh, kind of form for I assume one of you, and then how did it come together around that? Yeah. So this is my fault uh, that this book exists. <laughs> <laughs> I um, it was my first year out of law school. And I was coaching MIT now for a couple of years. And I had I'd been realizing that, you know, every year I kind of had to do the same thing, right? In September, I would get all the new members together. And one of my responsibilities as coach was teaching them the basics of mock trial. And one of the hardest things to teach them was objections and the rules of evidence, right? We would have maybe half of the new members had done some high school mock trial in different states. Half of them had never done mock trial before. And in maybe like a day or two, I had to take them through, you know, what hearsay is and what the truth of the matter asserted is and how to go through the prongs of 702 with an expert um, and try to introduce them to, to sort of everything that's in the, the federal rules of evidence or the Midlands rules of evidence. And doing it year after year, it became pretty evident that there were lots of things I was telling them that weren't actually in the rules, right? Like nowhere in the rules does it say, oh, here's what a party opponent means, and so I, I wanted the resource for me as something that I could maybe, you know, give out to the students or ask them to, you know, read a little bit every week or something like that. Um, but the other thing that was going on was as I would coach, we would go to a ton of tournaments. And as coaches know, we, we often get dragged into judge, which can be a lot of fun. Um, and I would, you know, always try to preside whenever I could. And so presiding at invitationals tournaments or... Last year, for example, I had the pleasure of going to Philly and um, presiding over an NCT round, which was really fun. Um, When you watch these rounds as the presider, you start to really see, you know, sort of what the circuit does and doesn't understand about the rules of evidence, you know, especially as someone who's now gone through law school and, and now practices as a trial attorney. And you can sort of see where some of the holes are in kind of the the knowledge uh, that the circuit has. And so those things were sort of bouncing around in my head that, you know, coaching MIT and judging for other teams. And so I reached out to Amanda and Emily, uh, being people that had either helped me or that I had helped start the programs at the college level or at the law school level that we had created. And I had seen both of them teach rules of evidence before, and I knew that they were excellent at it. And I also knew that I couldn't just put something like this together from the perspective of a Tufts mocker and like sort of what Tufts understanding of the ROE are. I would want to also bring in other schools, uh, institutional knowledge. And so they both said yes, uh, which was amazing. I think Amanda at first, (laughs) I think our first text message exchange, Amanda, I think I sent you a screenshot of this recently when we released the book uh, from like two and a half years ago, we have this first text message exchange where I send this long message to Amanda. I'm like, okay, so what if we wrote this book and it explained objections and and we could teach them to high school students and law school students and college students. and, And it sort of just, you know, walked you through all the different objections. And Amanda just writes back like in one sentence, like, isn't that what the rules of evidence are? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, <It's> Amanda. <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> as far as writing a book, I think that a lot of our listeners may, you know, not fully understand just how long a process like that takes. So can you tell us kind of briefly just like what, like that initial text message, you know, how long ago was that sent to, okay, it's published and available for purchase? Like how long is that process and what, you know, what did it all look like? This was, this was a long process uh, for sure. I mean, as Brian mentioned, I think that message was at this point now, maybe two and a half years ago, but from start to finish, I think the book really took about two years to put together. And a lot of that, of course, was planning process and actually sitting down and writing the sections. Um, But I would be remiss if I didn't say that a big chunk also of that time was making sure that we got drafts of this book out to 
editors and folks that we really wanted feedback from. Um, and we wanted to sort of do that at various levels. We got feedback from students who maybe don't have a proficiency in the rules of evidence, but are certainly the types of folks who would be using this book on a regular basis, um, at least as our first target audience. But we also got feedback from coaches and from other AMTA competitors, folks like Mike Polovich or Kyle West, who's both of whom are affiliated with AMTA. And um, Mike is certainly a good friend of mine. And then people who have coached for a really long time, like the Kumar, who used to coach for NYU, um, as well as some practicing lawyers. Um, so people that I had worked with in the past. And so all of that process from the planning to the writing to the editing to the rewriting to the re-editing um, to get editor feedback and put it all together and then find a printer and then get these books printed and review the, the draft copies of the printed work and then let the printer know, oh, here's some formatting changes we need to make. All of that took about two years. And, and it really, I think, was a steady workflow. We would be on calls at first, maybe every few weeks to a month. Um, with drafts and suggestions on what to write. And then after that, we would have almost weekly or biweekly check-ins when we were doing the editing. Um, and that that definitely took up a huge chunk of time, but was absolutely worth it, I think, by the end of it. You kind of referenced it there, uh, but can you go into... I, it's very interesting when you have you know three people with different uh, sort of approaches to the rules of evidence, presumably different sort of... Uh, methods of teaching the rules of evidence. So how did you go about sort of parsing that out and dividing the labor and ending up with, you know, one completed finished product? Uh, that's a great question. We, I think in very early on, we decided if we want to write this book, we should probably just see how it writes. So we each took the lead writing a particular chunk. Brian is the lead and responsible for hearsay, for instance. I took relevance and Emily took character. We thought those were sort of the big three objections that come up on every trial. They have lots of you know unique aspects to them, things that need explaining. And we each sort of took a draft of our own and then sent it to each other and would comment back and forth on that. And that took a little bit of while. And then we decided to add more chapters to that. And once we had a set of chapters, this is where I introduced both the best and worst editing system that we have ever heard of, which is the line-by-line -line editing system. Um, I had both the good fortune and misfortune, depending on how you look at it, of working with other people doing collaborative writing projects in the past. And what worked for us, even though it took a lot of time and was very painful, was truly reading the book out loud or silently to yourself, line-by-line, line, and then everybody jumps in and makes comments on word choice, on precision, on substance, on tone, all of that. And going through <laughs> drafts of every chapter line by line to make sure it was right and clear and effective and saying exactly what we wanted to took forever. Um, but with multiple writers, that's the way that we end up with a product that actually writes with one voice. And so it took a lot of Google Hangout chats, a lot of Google calls, a lot of Google Docs, honestly, Google key in, in assisting the, the multi-author <laughs> writing process here. Um, but yeah, thanks, Brian and Emily, for your patience <laughs> that. Are you kidding? I, I was actually really glad, Amanda, when you suggested the um, the line-by-line -line system, because I I was really thankful that both of you were willing to spend so much of your time while you were working as actual attorneys doing this project, uh, but I wasn't sure how much time we were all willing to put into it. And so I was definitely afraid at points that we would sort of just, you know, draft something, uh, call it good enough and send it out. And that is not what I wanted at all. I wanted to, you know, I, I've quickly learned that all three of us are like this, but, you know, our, our perfectionism is such that we want to keep rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it until there's nothing else we would change. And I'm, I'm just really thankful you were, you were all up for that process. Well, with that writing and rewriting process, was there, because you, you deal with basically all of the major rules in the book and going into fairly, you know, great detail on each one, was there a particular rule or section or passage that you found to be the most challenging to put together? Yeah, I think there were there are probably two here, and one is more conceptual, and one is more substantive. Uh, I think the substantively the hardest section to write was character, and then conceptually the hardest to conceptualize was foundation. With character, you know, Brian and Emily and I all had countless conversations about how, even within our among ourselves, we had various understandings of how the rule fit together, and some of us thought that you know four hundred four applied in a particular way with respect to section A, but not with respect to section B. And we saw these mistakes coming up also when we were judging competitions or coaching. Um, and so that was really hard. We went through so many more drafts of character, I think, than any other section of the book to really make sure we were laying it out right, but also clearly to avoid some of the pitfalls we'd seen. 
I think something in particular with character that was challenging is that the rules of evidence don't organize it particularly well, at least in our view, right? And there are, there are rules in the 400s that kind of are the basis of the rule against improper character evidence. But then there are rules in the 600s, which you have to read in order to understand times where you're allowed to attack witnesses' truthfulness. Right. And then there are rules sometimes in the 800s, which say, well, oh, if you're talking about a hearsay declarant, you know, it's going to have some impact on what you can do with character evidence about them. And so we, it really took us, I would say, right up until the very end of publishing the book to Definitely. get the character chapter into a structure that we liked, that kind of told people, okay, you know, conceptualize maybe these like six categories of attacking a character evidence objection. And here are the categories where method matters under 405. And here are the categories where method doesn't matter. And, you know, here's like a little branching tree or flowchart kind of concept that you can use to see how this whole thing fits together. Uh, because it, I, I think whoever drafted this um, did it uh, a little piecemeal. <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, that's that character chapter was was rough to write, but I think it I think it's better now. And I mean, conceptually, foundation is such an easy concept that that students grasp almost intuitively. Where a witness is up on the stand and says something, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, and they think to themselves, like, "Oh, we really need some other basic step before the witness can say that." But um, when we were talking it through, I think Emily and Brian both had a similar reaction, which is there's really two different flavors of foundation. One is the one that students immediately grasp onto, which is the witness gets up there, says one thing about their background, and then we're all of a sudden we're somewhere else in the story and we've, we've missed some background information that's necessary. And the other part that's harder to explain is this idea that foundation is actually inherent to basically every rule of evidence because it's really an objection to whatever requirements of the rule are missing for some other piece of evidence to be admitted. And that actually conceptually requires students to have at least some understanding of how objections work and what the rules of evidence are saying. And so Emily took the lead on redrafting a, a good chunk of this chapter um, specifically to help reframe that conceptual understanding. Um, and that I think turned out pretty successful, but took a while. Yeah, I think with with foundation, even more so than with character, it's just a place where the rules of evidence really kind of let us down in terms of how to understand and how to teach this. I mean, you have students asking you questions about how, how do you know that foundation works this way? Um, and, and it took us a long time to figure out how to really put into words uh, the way that we thought uh, it should be thought about. Well, I think you've all kind of alluded to uh, the the way that you ended up structuring the book, but can you kind of give us an overview? What was the the method behind the madness of the structure of your book? Obviously, you guys had a little more time to to hopefully think about a way that is easier for the reader than the traditional rules of evidence. Sure. So I think um, anyone who's coached or, or taught mock trial or, or learned mock trial at all uh, knows that the best way to learn is really by example. I think. Uh, the reason that you get so much better from freshman to senior year is because you have the opportunity to sit in countless rounds and see people um, really succeed with objections and, and where people fail as well. Um, and so we knew that we wanted to bring in the idea of example. Um, and we also knew that we didn't want to do what you would do in a law school exam or in bar prep, where you just have this random hypothetical uh, with Bob and Sue and, uh, you know, just just a, a pretty generic set of facts. Um, and so we decided to kind of take these easily identifiable stories like Harry Potter, fairy tales, um, Wizard of Oz, different Disney movies, and uh, kind of use the universes that exist already uh, where people can, you know, grasp who the characters are and what's going on uh, and turn those into individual chapters. So for example, we have uh, our Harry Potter chapter is hearsay. So all of our examples and our transcripts in that chapter um, come from the Harry Potter universe. Um, and, and then within the chapters, we kind of broke it down um, in, into a few different types of sections. And the idea behind that was that we wanted there to be sort of layers in the book where people that had just started mock trial could could grasp what was going on, um, but also that there would be a lot there for people that had a lot of experience um, and maybe had some just some gaps to fill. Um, and so we start off with, with an explanation of the rule. Um, we 
throw in a lot of examples, uh, hypothetical situations that are based in the universes, um, transcripts to show how these arguments would actually play out in a round, um, which gave us the opportunity to kind of also teach just the language of mock trial and how people are, are speaking to judges and how people uh, you know, refer to opposing counsel. And uh, we also have, uh, you know, in real life examples to show how the rules of evidence play out and are very important in real trials. So I, I know we have an example from O.J. Simpson, um, things like that. Uh, and then finally, for our more advanced readers, we pepper in some pro tips uh, where we we give some some things that we've learned over the years or that we've uh, seen others do uh, that can really get you to the next level in terms of uh, beating your opponent in an objection battle. Awesome. Well, while you guys were writing this, obviously you've said it took a little while. Were there any particular objections or just rules that you've kind of learned about while you were writing this that maybe you didn't realize uh, when you were competing and, you know, kind of you wish you knew then? Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely think what, one of the real motivations for putting this together, right, was the idea that in high school, you think you understand the rules of evidence and then you get to college and you're like, ah, that's what truth of the matter asserted is. Okay. Now I've got the rules of evidence. And then you get to law school and you're like, oh, extrinsic evidence exists. I hadn't noticed those words before. They are in the rules though. Okay, good to know. And then you get to like real court and you're like, oh no, it's changed again. Um, oh, and I'm sure that'll, I'm sure that'll keep happening to us. Um, but yeah, I mean, by way of example, well, I think extrinsic evidence is something that I, I didn't have a strong concept of probably uh, before law school. Um, the idea that there are some character rules. Uh, so things that talk about essential elements of crimes uh, claims or defenses are, are definitely things that I, I didn't understand as strongly as an AMTA competitor. Um, but I think probably one of the, or at least my favorite example would be 806. I think that's probably all of our favorite examples. So there's this rule of evidence 806. You might've not seen it before. It's in there. And what it basically says is that when you have a hearsay declarant, you should treat them like they're a trial witness. So Many listeners will probably remember or know that when it comes to the rules of character evidence, you can't enter certain types of, of character evidence. It's improper character evidence. And, and there's an exception, a carve out for evidence about the truthfulness of a witness, a witness who's testifying at trial. So in AMTA, this would be the six people, three on each side that are in the courtroom today. You can attack their truthfulness, their honesty through character evidence. And that carve out most of us typically understand just to apply to those six people. So if the defendant doesn't testify, you don't get to use truthfulness evidence about the defendant in that way. And then there, there's this hearsay rule 806 that kind of comes out of nowhere that I think we really kind of identified while putting this book together that says, well, you can treat hearsay declarants like witnesses. So what that means is that if you've got someone who made an out-of-court statement and it's being brought into court, well, now we need to know whether that person is a truthful kind of person and you can start attacking them with character evidence about their truthfulness. And it's this like cool bridge between hearsay and character evidence or, or hearsay and lack of personal knowledge um, that I certainly had never thought to use before putting this together. That That's really interesting. I, I uh, imagine, you know, when, when you dig into the rules, I feel like you know, I feel like they're not altogether different from when you're riding in the Vanda Orcs and reading the case and you're like, wait, has this been in here the whole year? Uh, <laughs> where it's like you, you can read them so many different times and find different things. Uh, along those lines, uh, obviously there are, you guys have kind of alluded to it, there are several different levels of mock trial. Uh, and all of them have different sort of ways of approaching objections and, and different ways that objections are used. Is there a specific target audience for this book or is it written for sort of like there are certain things that certain target audiences could take from uh, different passages of the book? Our target audience is really, like I said, we really tried to make it so that it could apply to people who both knew nothing about mock trial, ideally someone who's never stepped foot in a fake courtroom before could pick up this book and look through it and understand what it says, but also to, to help people that did have more experience. Um, so I think we're really, we're aiming it at high school, college, um, law school, mock trial, it, really anyone who needs sort of a boost in learning about 
how the rules of evidence apply. I know I came from a student-run college program um, where we had seniors teaching the rules of evidence. And, you know, as, as much as you try to convey the information, I realized once I got to law school that what I was teaching was just a very surface level uh, explanation of the rules of evidence. So I think, especially with those kind of teams in mind that might need, uh, you know, just a, just some extra help, I think that's that's really who we're targeting here. Along those lines, something that sort of occurred to me as, as we're talking is I think there are, you know, areas of the rules of evidence where different people interpret them different ways. Uh, and, you know, you do, I know you guys talked about your process and how you sort of resolved everything. Was there ever a point during the process where you sort of, you know, you're working on, okay, let's try to explain this to someone. And you kind of just got to a point where you were like, you know what, I think my understanding of how this rule is supposed to work is just a little bit different from yours. Uh, or did you guys feel like you were kind of able to get to a common understanding of all of the concepts that are in the book? I think we eventually landed on that common understanding, but there were so many times, Ben, when we would sit down and say like, oh, I, I thought that rule was really used for this purpose. And I think that that's clear from the commentary to the rules of evidence, for instance, or from the way that all of this works. And, and then someone else would sort of jump in and say, well, you know, I, I just saw this play out in my deposition or the hearing that I just had. And I thought that the real way that you argue this is this way. Um, and there were so many comment bubbles on our drafts and like conversations back and forth to that effect. But we really didn't want to put out a book where we all didn't feel like we could get behind the content entirely. Um, and so we really did have a lot of conversations about that. Um, and in particular, like we pulled up case law, you know, through Westlaw just to make sure that this was not a wild and crazy interpretation of a particular rule. Um, and we, and, you know, some jurisdictions will apply rules slightly differently. And, and there's places in the book where we've recognized, you know, California, for instance, for those working under the California rules of evidence doesn't recognize this particular hearsay exception um, and instead treats it differently. Uh, and so we tried to make that clear that some jurisdictions will have some variance. Um, and we also, you know, with editors and, and other folks who were reading this book, jumping in with their own reactions, that kind of helped us shape it. But I think we did ultimately end, end up on a common understanding of how these rules operate. It just took a lot of time to really sit with them and think about them, which is something that a lot of AMTA students and high school students and even law students don't really have the time or ability to do upfront before they're preparing for their competition. So obviously, uh, we are currently recording this uh, during the the quarantine in which everyone is fairly homebound. And I'm not sure whether it was because of the quarantine and everything, but you all recently hosted a Facebook Live event in which you uh, had kind of a objections trivia for a few different teams. So could one of you just kind of tell us a little bit about that and how that went? I, I think that it was a, a nice break for a lot of uh, – college mockers who were kind of wanting their itch for objections after they'd just, you know, done their closing for uh, UCLA's competition. And this was kind of their chance to exercise those muscles a little bit. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. So um, you're totally right. It was definitely inspired by the quarantine. Uh, basically, as soon as we realized that all of the schools were being shut down and that the students were being sent home and that something like nationals was going to be either canceled or postponed, we started brainstorming to see if there was anything that we could do online. Um, and so a Facebook live event was the first thing we thought of and we put, did it in the form of pub trivia. So we put together 30 questions across a bunch of rounds um, and we actually had really good turnout. We had 30 schools show up. Uh, there were like 80 or 90 people watching a live stream at a time, hundreds of comments. And Amanda hosted, she was fantastic, uh, read out all of our, <laughs> you're very welcome, Amanda, read out all of our questions. Um, and then we had people submitting responses over a Google form. And Emily and I were running virtual tab room in the back, scrambling. It was way harder than I expected, scrambling to grade these responses as they were flooding in. Yeah, it turns out we're lawyers, not mathematicians. So <laughs> 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 oh, that's super true. I mean, it was easy enough to do like the true false questions. Um, but once people started doing free responses, I mean, there was one instance where we had written a question with the intent of the question to be testing your knowledge of the concept called forfeiture by wrongdoing. And of course, we had written the question. I, I don't know if you want to say ambiguously enough or sloppily enough. I'll take responsibility for that. Um, such that you could also solve it by the text of a different rule that had to do with requiring 
homicides, in uh, uh, dying declarations. And so we start seeing these answers flood in. And, you know, some people, some teams didn't seem to know, you know, what the right answer would be. And then there was these two categories of teams giving two very different, very confident answers for the solution to this question. And so I had to like get Emily on the phone and be like, wait, like, wait, are these both right? What's the answer? Uh, we ended up accepting both of them. But uh, no, it was a ton of fun. Um, Tufts ended up taking first place. I was very proud. I promise I didn't give them answers. Yes, I didn't. Is there a student-run, uncoached program? Let's just make there that a student-run, uncoached program. I'm no longer affiliated. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Tufts came in first. Uh, Arizona State in second. Vanderbilt and Harvard uh, tying for for third place. It was. I, I think it was amazing. We got a lot of positive responses afterwards. Uh, woke up to a lot of Facebook messages the next morning. <laughs> well, that, that's great, and I think you know. It, in the current situation that we're all in, uh, it's good seeing like what UCLA did with the, the online competition and what you guys are doing with this. Like, you know, we're all doing the best we can to sort of, you know, just keep ourselves sharp and, and to sort of keep getting to do this activity that we all really enjoy. And that got sort of cut off right in the middle of, of the peak of the season. Uh, but obviously, you know, you guys, you finished this book, it's out and it's available. And we were hoping before we wrap up, that one of you could pick a particular passage from this book. Uh, I guess I'd say maybe your favorite passage or the passage that you think uh, is most representative uh, of uh, what you've done, the finished product, and maybe read that for our listeners. All right. Yeah, I think this, I think we have a really good maybe transcript that we'd like to read in mind for this. Um, so in our hearsay section of our book, we're looking at page 91. We talk a lot about recorded recollection, uh, which is an exception to hearsay, 8035. And there's a transcript that starts off like this. Professor Gildroy Lockhart once fought off a vampire. At least that's what he wrote in his book, Voyages with Vampires. Years after the incident, his memory was erased. Now an old witch claims that she, and not Lockhart, is the true heroine of that story. She sues Lockhart for profiting off of her triumphs. Lockhart, have you ever fought off a vampire? I, I can't remember. Would it help your memory if you were to see a copy of your book, Voyages with Vampires? It might. I'm showing opposing counsel what's been previously marked as Defense Exhibit A. May I approach the witness? You may. Professor Lockhart, I'm showing you what's been marked as Defense Exhibit A. What is this? It's a book I wrote called Voyages with Vampires. When did you write this book? Several years ago. It was my first diary-style book. I, I wrote it as a way of documenting my travels. Did you take care to record your travels accurately? Of course. I would have written down each day's events in painstaking detail. I would have even taken some photos to go along with the description. If you would, please turn to page 32 and read the second paragraph silently to yourself. Look it up at me when you're done. Does that refresh your recollection regarding whether you actually fought that vampire? I'm sorry, I still can't remember any of that happening. In that case, Your Honor, I move to admit what's been marked as Defense Exhibit A into evidence as a recorded recollection. Objection. Under Rule 8035, counsel may read aloud from the book, but she can't enter it into evidence because she and the witness are on the same side of the case. Sustained. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Excellent choice, Amanda. And and yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what the book does, right? It it spends a majority of the time explaining how the rules work, what the nuances are. And then we jump into these transcripts to try and show, okay, like, what do you actually need to say? Right. And at the end, Amanda gets to sustain her own objection, which I can't imagine is something that she's too upset about, right? Oh, it's a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, though. I love that. And I love... You know, I think we've all, you know, who have had to teach uh, the rules of evidence have done things like using Harry Potter or Star Wars or things like or the different, you know, stories that you do in here. And, and I think uh, that's a really cool example of putting it in a context that people are going to understand and be able to relate to and also making it a little bit more fun. Uh, so to finish up here, we've talked a lot about the book. We've talked a lot about the process, about the finished product. Uh, the book is now available for sale. So could one of you tell us, sort of give us a final plug for what it is that you've put together and explain to our listeners the best way for them to pick up uh, a copy of the book? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think our final plug is just, we think this is a great resource for students and young lawyers at all levels. And the best way to get it is to go to our website, which is www.winningobjections.com. You can place an order directly from there. And then one of us, most likely me, will wrap up your book, put a label on it and put it in the mail to you. And it'll reach you in, um, if you choose media mail, seven days. And if you really desperately need an objections book in the next two to four days, we can get it there faster as well. Um, But we really hope that you know, no matter how many people end up buying this book or which students buy it, uh, we think that it's been a great resource for us to learn and to reappreciate the rules. And we think it's something that really has something to offer for anybody at any level. And am I right from looking at your website that you have a bulk discount if you want to order a set, say for your whole team to distribute or something along those lines? Yep, that's exactly right. So for folks who, uh, you know, have 10 members on their team or 10 people who want to get together and and buy a copy each, we do offer a bulk discount uh, for those students. And we've also been really fortunate recently to receive some orders from university school bookstores who are incorporating the book as actual textbooks in their mock trial or trial advocacy programs. And that has been another way to be able to get these books on shelves more accessible to students um, who might walk into the bookstore and try out for their mock trial team and have a resource that they can use immediately. Well, that's that's great to hear. I, I think it's a really great resource uh, for those listening. Drew and I are going to jump back on the mics in a few minutes to uh, do our sort of our in depth book review and, and go into what we like about it and what we you know got a chance. We've both gotten a chance to read the book. Uh, but Brian, Emily, and Amanda, we can't thank you guys enough both for writing this book uh, and for joining us on the podcast. I think it's a really great resource. And I'm looking forward to sort of it, it being distributed to the AMTA community at large. Uh, I think it's going to be really beneficial for a lot of teams. Uh, so thank you guys very much for taking the time to talk, talk to us. Thanks, guys. Seriously, thanks so much for having us. Um, it's, it's cool to see alumni doing anything to give back to the community. So whether that's uh, your podcast, which I love and I'm still catching up on, um, or this book or, or folks who coach, um, it's, it's just great to chat with any of you. Well, it's been great to have all of you, uh, and Drew and I are going to hop back on the mics in just a second, so we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mock Review. We just wrapped up having a chat with the three wonderful authors of Winning Objections, a Mock Trial Guidebook. Uh, I, I found it really, really fun just to get to chat with them, Ben, see kind of the the wheels turning behind this this book that they've written together. But Ben, I'll kick it to you first. What did you think about it? Yeah, it was it was a really great conversation. I, I uh, you know, we, we've never had you and I talked about this beforehand. We've never had three people on at the same time as guests. Uh, and I know we were both kind of trying to figure out the best way it would work, but they all have such sort of awesome and interesting backgrounds in mock trial. Uh, really you know, incredibly impressive accomplishments uh, for all three of them. And uh, I, I just really enjoyed getting to, you know, dig into their thought process. And and I think I kind of alluded to it when we were recording with them, but between two people who are crazy enough to re- to uh, record a mock trial podcast and three people who are crazy enough to write a mock trial book, uh, we had a lot of mock trial craziness in the room, but uh, I, I really enjoyed getting to talk to them. Uh, but as we mentioned, the reason that we're doing this second segment is Drew and I, uh, both as a part of this episode, the authors, uh, Brian, Amanda, and Emily, were kind enough to provide us each with a copy of the book, and we both got a chance to go through it. Uh, and we wanted to just give our sort of unfiltered thoughts on, on our reactions to the book. Uh, so, Drew, I will start with you. Um, I don't know if I would go so far as to call this a, a book review. We're not NPR, but uh, to the extent that we are, which is very little, uh, what were your initial thoughts uh, when you got a chance to go through uh, winning objections? So I, I tried to read this from two perspectives. First, from my personal perspective as a a previous uh, college mock trialer and my personal objection knowledge uh, and then second, as a coach, as someone that coaches high school mock trial and how I can use it in that lens. And I will say that I found it much more helpful from the I'm a, I'm a coach perspective. I think that as a, a competitor in mock trial who's done this for a, a longer than I care to admit now, uh, 
I feel like a lot of it was things that I was already familiar with. And that's not to say it wasn't helpful. I think that I've been fortunate to do mock trial as long as I have. I've been fortunate to do it with some really, really smart people. I've been fortunate to have, you know, when I was in high school, some really great objection uh, teachers. And I think that as a result, I didn't find it super, super helpful for for me to expand my own objection knowledge. And I found it to be a lot of things that I felt like I already knew. That being said, there were like a, you know, a a line here or there where I was kind of like, oh, like I, I haven't ever really used that in trial or I've never seen it in trial. I've read that rule and thought about it, but I've never really seen an example of it. And it was kind of helpful to see some of those. So I certainly appreciated that aspect but I think that I got a lot more for uh, out of it as the from the coaching perspective and as a way of teaching new people. And I will say that I my philosophy when when I started coaching was to coach my high school team uh, the way that I did college mock trial and to try to take as many things that I learned from that world and bring it to the high school world. And I I like to think that it worked pretty well for them. But I thought that this book was, obviously it is written for the most part uh, catered towards college mock trial, but I think that it actually worked very, very well um, as a a guidebook for, for high school mock trial as well. And the the two specific areas that I will highlight that I really liked um, were things that they kind of alluded to when we we spoke with uh, with the wonderful authors Brian, uh, Amanda, and Emily. But uh, the first was the the cases and the examples and the transcripts that they used. I think that there's they they mentioned this, but it's nice to use these really well-known examples. They talked about Harry Potter. They have an example of Hansel and Gretel um, that I really, really liked. Uh, But these are all, you know, fairy tales and other, you know, well-known stories where we already know a lot of the basic facts of the situation and they don't need to do quite as much backstory for it to feel like, oh yeah, I know what they're talking about. But also it's fun. It's fun to talk about these characters that we already know and think about what would happen if they were on trial. Um, So I thought that that was a really fun way to show uses of it. And just to expand that a little more, the the fact that they were doing this whole, how can I use this in trial and showing examples of, okay, I just told you what hearsay is and what this exception to hearsay is. Here's an example of when that happens in trial. This is the back and forth that you can expect between yourself and a judge. I think that just having that in and of itself is a really, really helpful thing. Um, and I, I just think that those examples, when they're relevant and they feel it like something that I, or when they feel like there's something that I'm familiar with already, I think it makes it all the more meaningful. And I think that it can be really, really beneficial to people just learning a lot of these things to not just understand what the definition of relevance or hearsay is, but to actually see how it is used in trial and where I can use it and how I can win an objection with it. Uh, so Ben, I'll, I'll kind of kick it to you now. You know, what, what did you think about it? Obviously you have the, the coaching perspective that I've spoken about, but you've also been a, a trial attorney for some time. So, you know, hopefully you have that unique perspective. Uh, yeah. So I, I will say this first. Uh, I really like it, uh, and and I genuinely mean that. I you know I think we've sort of shown on the podcast at this point that we are honest about how we feel. And if if I had thought it was you know sloppy and bad, I would say so. And I absolutely do not feel that way. I, I think that uh, you'll hear from the interview, you know, just the degree of care that the authors put into the book, uh, and I think that is very clear. They're they're all three very intelligent and extremely experienced in multiple different levels of mock trial uh, and obviously all, you know, moving on to doing things in the real world. And so uh, I think it's a really great resource. Uh, Similar to what you were saying, Drew, I'll sort of look at it from two quick perspectives. As a coach, right, for the coaches out there that, that listen to this podcast, I think it's a really cool opportunity to get to almost like jump into someone else's brain and go through how they explain these things. 
right? I think it was Brian who talked about how like this is a process he had to go through every year. And I really, <laughs> I really felt that when he talked about that, to, trying to teach, you know, I, I can think about, you know, giving evidence lectures at the beginning in September when we bring in all the new members and all the new members look terrified and all the old members look bored. And uh, that is an incredibly challenging part of the season in terms of coaching. And I loved when I was reading this book, getting to be like, okay, I explain this this way. They explain this this way, which, you know, let me rethink my perspective a little bit. Let me think about whether or not I can incorporate this into the resources that I use. Um, you know, I imagine other coaches will have a similar experience I did where there are portions here and there where you think, okay, I see it a little bit differently than how the book explains it. But they do a really, really great job of giving you a perspective on every important rule and being very methodical in saying, okay, here is what this means. Here's how you can apply it. Uh, from the competitor perspective, it's obviously been several years since I was a competitor, but uh, I work with, you know, amateur competitors on a daily basis. I think the best part of this book from a competitor standpoint is the sort of visual and uh, sort of the landscape in which the book is laid out. Right, The content is top-notch and it's really, really useful, but the way in which it it doesn't ever have sections and, and, and you know, those of you who, who own it or who buy it will see, like, it's not like it's just huge chunks of text all like page after page after page, right? It, there are, uh, you know, they say what the rules say and then they explain them and then they give examples and then they give tips and like, it is visually very, uh, like, I'm going to say underwhelming, but not in like a pejorative way in like a, you do not feel overwhelmed as you move through the information in the book. Uh, I think it was uh, Emily who talked a little bit about the character evidence section. And I will say in particular, like I hate teaching character evidence because as I think Brian alluded to in our conversation, it is, it is, I'll just straight up say poorly written in the federal rules of evidence. Uh, and obviously the Midlands rules, which largely take from that, you kind of got a pit pull from all over the place. Uh, and I love the character evidence section of this book. It is precise. It is well scripted. It is easy to understand as such that character evidence can be. Uh, so I will say this, like, Every coach should, like, I would not recommend that coaches just, like, go out, buy 20 copies of the book and say, read this and learn everything in this book, right? You as a coach should go through and say, okay, let me pull out the sections that I think are most useful for my team, read them through, make sure I agree with everything, uh, but use it to supplement and challenge and enhance your understanding of these rules from three unbelievably intelligent and well-experienced people. Uh, and for competitors, this is really the only thing out there that does what it does, right? I, I teach trial advocacy at the college level, both to mock trial students and to non-mock trial students. And I use um, the mock trials textbook as well as a mastering trial advocacy textbook by Charlie Rose. And I, you know, I use some trial ad books and they're great. They, they have some really good sections, but None of them do anything close to what this book does in terms of providing a treatise for objecting at the college level. And it applies in other ways too, but primarily, like you said, at the college level. So bottom line for me is I think from a coaching perspective and from a competing perspective, it's a really great resource. And I would encourage people, um, even if you don't use it to replace what you're doing, if you just use it to supplement and improve what you're doing, it's going to make you a better coach or a better advocate. No, I think that I totally agree with that. I think that this, one of the things that I really liked, just the fact that they spent the time to do this and to break it down so much for people, I feel like if I could have read this book three years ago, I could have been, you know, one of those attorneys that really knew, like, I, I feel like it just it, – it takes a lot of the experience that you gain over the years and puts it into a book for you. And I would just encourage – you know, if you're a young mocker and you're wondering, man, how could I step it up? How can I do a little bit better? I feel like reading this book is the equivalent of like 
two to three more years of mock trial experience. And I, I really strongly feel like it's just, it, it, it will help you so much to understand the nuances and to get those finer points. And I really agree. I think that it's something that everyone should take some time to do. And I think that at the end of the day, I'm really glad that, that the three of them did this. I think that uh, as you were saying, Ben, there aren't a ton of resources like this, and so many of the rules are just written so poorly. I think that we spend so much time often debating amongst ourselves you know, nuances of the rule. I, I will say that uh, I had a really fun experience um, when I was actually judging at, at Tufts Tournament, um, and in the judges' room, there were a bunch of other uh, ex-mockers, and a bunch of us were all talking about a particular rules issue in the case um, this past year. And it was really fun to just kind of sit around and, and talk about these issues. And I think that it it's something where we don't always spend a ton of time talking about it, but it's a lot of fun to have those discussions. And I think that a book like this can help start those discussions with teams. And I think that it, I, I really do think that if you're a, a young mocker, this is something that should be something that you take a look at. It, it will help. Um, it is a really, really great resource. And I, I will I'll echo what Ben said about the character evidence section. That to me was one of the most helpful sections um, for me uh, just as a coach. It's character evidence just sounds so weird. It's intimidating. People don't understand it. As Brian talked about on the podcast, it's scattered around the rules of evidence as to what applies to what. And they did such a nice job of consolidating it all into this one really clean chapter um, and I just think that in general, they did, I love the way that they organized it and, and allowed you to kind of navigate it in a much more coherent way. I just, I, I really do think that this is a, a great resource for people to use. I really enjoyed reading it. Like I said, there were a couple of little things in there, little nuggets of, of knowledge that I read. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. That's really, really cool. And that's really, really helpful. Um, so I think that it really can be helpful for everyone. I Look, I mean, there's obviously it, it is more helpful for people that are newer to this activity than to those of you that have done it for a while. But I do think that it was a, a really well-written uh, piece of of work, and I'm I'm just grateful to the three of them that they took the time to do it. Yeah, and and sort of my last reaction, right, is is uh, I I think what you were saying about providing a, you know almost lowering the barrier to entry, right? It, here's I think the clearest way to explain what I think this book does really well is, you know, one of the hardest parts of learning the rules is the rules themselves. Right. So, so I, I was an undergraduate competitor for a couple of years, but you know, UMBC was new at that point. I wasn't very good in undergrad. And when I went to law school, my wonderful coach at Maryland Law, AJ Belita DeLuna, uh, we joined the trial team. And over the summer, you know, after you joined the trial team, you were required to memorize the federal rules of evidence, like just all of them from cover to cover. Uh, and when you came back, you on the first day of class, you walked in, he handed you a blue book and he said, write the federal rules of evidence. Uh, and it was the best thing that anyone has ever forced me to do from a mock trial perspective, because they are in there and they are stuck in there and no one can ever get them out. Uh, and, you know, it was awful memorizing them. It was miserable. But the thing is, even when you memorize the rules, you still have to understand them. And, you know, I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, you want to be really good at the rules of evidence, like you have to put in the work uh, and you have to put in the effort. But I've had plenty of students who have gone and put in tons of work and read the rules and memorized the rules. And they're like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And while this book does not, you can't just sit down, read this book cover to cover once and just be the world's greatest mock trial competitor, right? It doesn't work like that. It isn't going to be a substitute for preparation and hard work. But I think it makes preparation and hard work more likely to give you what you're going for, mm -hmm. right? That you sit down, and you read the rules and you say, you know, all right, I've read this. I've read it a bunch of times. I've Googled it. I just don't quite get it. Let me look at winning objections and they explain it. Um, I was just looking here. And so like, I'm looking at page 54. 
of uh, the book and it's talking, it's the foundation section. And there's a section at the top of page 54 talking about time constraints. And it says some attorneys use excessive lack of foundation objections as a time wasting technique by forcing opposing counsel to ask more and more questions. They hope to run out the clock, especially in tournaments where time is strictly limited. And it gives you sort of like an example of what to do in that scenario. There are a lot of little places in this like there's nowhere in the rules of evidence that explains what to do when the asshole on the other table is like, you know what? They've only got three minutes left. I'm going to make a bunch of lack of foundation objections, uh, which like we've all been the person doing that. And we've all been the person on the receiving end of that or many people at least. Uh, and there's nowhere in the rules of evidence that's going to explain to you how to deal with that. Uh, but if you know your foundation rules and then you use, you know, this book as a resource to be like, okay, now let me go in and supplement that knowledge to help me explain these things. I think it does a really strong job of lowering the barrier to entry for the rules. Uh, again, it's still going to be important that you put in the work, you know, that if you're a coached program that you read it and then you go to your coach and say, hey, they said it this way, like kind of talk to me about this. Let's, let's you know, sort of chew the fat on this particular subject. Uh but especially if you're a student who's like, man, I love mock trial and I just want to be better than I am now. I think this will provide you with uh, some really great resources to be able to do that. Uh, and to be clear, we're not like, you know, we're not getting anything from talking about the book, right? We, we each got a chance to read it, uh, but we're doing this just because we think, you know, it's a good opportunity to provide some information uh, about resources. And I would say... You know, it's it's priced at I think thirty four ninety nine for a standard copy or twenty nine ninety nine if you do the uh, bulk order. Uh, I think it is well worth uh, that price. I think that is a very reasonable price for uh, what you get. Um, it's not a you know it's a fairly small book as I'm holding it in my hand, but it it goes in depth on a lot of important things, and I think it's the type of thing that you buy and you just kind of keep it in your backpack. And when you're sitting in class and, and you know, you're sitting, you know, on the quad or whatever, and you're like, man, I, I want to fix up that director, fix up that cross. You kind of keep it open next to you and you say, let me make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. Uh, I think it's a perfect resource for that. So my final word is I say, as long as it's something that you personally feel like, you know, you can afford and, and that you would use, uh, I intend to use portions of it moving forward to teach and to supplement my own knowledge and to edit some of the resources I use. I imagine other coaches out there would have a similar experience and I hope that, you know, it gets distributed widely to the community because I think only good things can come from that. Yeah. I, I think that I really agree with all of that you said, Ben, I, I think that my closing thought on this is that I want to echo what you were saying about it being, uh, you know, lowering the barrier for entry. I think that so many people talk about how, you know, how can I get better? How can I improve? What can I do to take my, mock trial to that next level. And I I think that this is such a great resource for kind of putting, to a certain extent, everyone at the same level. I mean, one of the things that's tough about mock trial is that people have access to different resources. And, and this still applies to this. I mean, whether you have the financial means to to purchase this book, of course, is there. But to me, I think that this means that ideally, uh, you know, in an, in an ideal world, you know, almost everyone is reading this and and using this as their as, as a at least supplementary, uh, you know, book on mock trial and how to do well at objections. And in an ideal world, that now means that that everyone is getting that same resource available to them. And of course, you're still going to have people that get coached by different people that get to learn the rules in different ways. But I think it's really great that we are you know, giving everyone kind of the same tools and then seeing, you know, how well do you use those tools? And I, I just think that in general, that's going to continue to make this activity a more balanced one and one that more and more people can get involved in, can fall in love with it the way that we have and can find their success. So I, I'm just, as I said before, so grateful that this has been written and I would encourage everyone to, to if they have the means to, to go out and get it. Uh, I think it'll help a lot. Yep. I agree with that. Uh, thank you again to uh, Brian, Amanda, and Emily for coming on the show. It, it took a little bit of a, 
maneuvering to figure out, you know, a way for all five of us to to talk together. But I was really glad that we did. Uh, and you know, Drew, this this whole self isolation thing. We're, we're recording this uh, at the beginning of April, and you know, since we la- since we talked to Devin, and since we you know did our orcs review, obviously things around the world have gotten you know much worse. And I, I'm guessing the vast majority of our listeners are uh, you know isolating at home or isolating you know in a particular location. So I hope things are well with you, and and I've been enjoying just kind of doing the best we can to provide a little bit of, uh, I don't know if distraction is the right word, but just a little bit of mock trial content in the midst of, you know, a pretty challenging time. Yep. I agree. I think that it, you know, everyone hopefully stay safe. Yep. I I agree. Everyone stay safe, stay well. We're looking forward to, uh, being in your feet again very soon until then. This has been the mock review with Ben and Drew.